throughout the past few weeks, we've begun on our journey to investigate what genuine faith is. What does genuine faith look like in the life of a believer? We started by addressing the facts of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, all the facts that we're honestly overly familiar with, and it is a shame that we do, we do become bored with them at times. Next, we stepped a little bit back, in a sense, and we started looking at human depravity. I thought it was the best place to begin our discussion of faith because it shows how faith is not of ourselves, how we do not seek God naturally, how we, as a matter of fact, are turning and running from God in our natural state. And so that was our next step in looking to what faith is. We, we then started to look at um, a few different things. We looked at the dilemma last week that man has now found himself in as man is considered wicked and unrighteous before God and God cannot clear the guilty or the wicked. It goes against who he is. And so we explore that dilemma just briefly before Ellie had prepared such a wonderful time for us. Um, and it, I, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and I <laughs> got lost a lot playing sardines. Anyways, so tonight we're rolling into the next chapter, and this is really going to be kind of the last lesson where we're starting to jump off into our discussion. Tonight we're going to be talking about salvation in the sense of that it is through faith alone. Um, the common Reformation term would be sola fide. However, you may be already jumping ahead and saying, you know, you think of that passage in James where it says, um, you know, faith alone cannot save. And so I want to clarify right off the top, the title to this lesson is indeed sola fide. However, that faith, that sola fide, faith alone, that's what that means. It is a faith that is never alone. We're going to start there. But anyway, so tonight we're going to explore the doctrine of sola fide, how salvation is by faith alone. Throughout church history, many doctrines have been attacked consistently and without much reprobation. Uh, you think doctrines surrounding Christ, man, the gospel, um, they've all been perpetually attacked. How many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Athanasius? Any of you? Any of you heard of him? Um, he was going off to debate at one council. Uh, I believe it was to defend uh, doctrine of the Trinity, and somebody reportedly said, Athanasius, do you not know that you're the only one in the whole world who takes this position? And it's something that we would hold, you know, almost without question today. And Athanasius had the wonderful response. Well, then it's Athanasius against the world. And one of those doctrines that has been attacked consistently is, um, is faith alone. You think to the dark ages of theology and um, Catholicism there, you know, from about 500 to 1500, or 1517 to be specific, there was a true cloak of darkness set over the faith in the idea of faith alone. It's what Martin Luther and the, and the reformers really took issue with, is mixing faith and works. However, this is not something that's exactly just confined to the Catholic Church. This is something that has been since day one. Um, the very moment that Paul started teaching this idea that man can be saved by faith alone, there was immediately opposition from Judaizers who would follow him and dog his steps wherever he went. Galatians 2, 3 through 5. This is not a new thing that the doctrine of faith alone has been attacked. Galatians 2, 3. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. 
and that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came to spy out our li liberty which we have in Jesus Christ that they might bring us into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection no not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue so these Judaizers tried to infiltrate the church, and Titus didn't feel a need to be circumcised. That was kind of what their thing was. I mean, it changes throughout the ages. It's always a new form it takes. But the Judaizers wanted adherence to the Mosaic law in addition to faith in Christ. And Titus didn't feel the need to be circumcised, and Paul was like, we didn't even give in to him, not even for an hour. And so this is not something that's new. But I want to ask you this question. Why is it so crucially important that the purity of justification by faith alone be preserved? Why is that an important doctrine? Why is it meaningful to even spend time on such a doctrine? Yeah. Because every other religion is works. The, the thing that makes Christianity different, the thing that makes it stand out, the thing that is makes it evident that it's the truth is that it is by faith alone. Everything else is works-based. There are only two religions, the works-based or faith alone. Other thoughts? Why is it important that we defend justification by faith alone? Yeah. That's an incredibly biblical thought, too. Um, I believe it is in Galatians where Paul says if you know, you could have had righteousness by the law, then Christ has died in vain. That's a good insight. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Um, this is kind of going off of what Karen said, too, but um, it totally, it diminishes the work of Jesus on the cross, but it also takes the glory away from God and what sure. he did and, and the power that he has to save. It takes that away and rests it on you and on something that you can do. Yes. Yes. If you don't focus on faith alone, it's going to be you, it's going to turn into legalism, which is mm -hmm. a very wrong way of thinking. You can't do anything to be in favor of God. It's you trust in what Christ has already done, and that alone is the favor you're going to get. Like yeah. that, that is more favor than, I mean, that, that is your favor of God. That's it. Like, that's yeah. why. John you in the first place, yeah. Catch this. This is, I believe this, not that you guys are wrong. I think you all have hit a different aspect, not to invalidate any of yours. In Galatians, as I was just progressing through reading it, just you know, almost in a superficial sense, catch the reason that Paul gives in Galatians 5, 1 through 4 as here's the reason that mixing faith with works um, as a means of justification is wrong and terribly, terribly, terribly harmful for you as a person. Mixing those two n for justification nullifies Christ to you, which seems rather flagrantly, I mean, that seems a little dramatic. I'm not here to shock and awe, but seriously, mixing those two nullifies Christ to you. Galatians 5, 1 through 4. Keep the whole law. You have become estranged from, 
from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace if you try to mix the two. And he's not going to profit you anything because you want it on your terms, you got it. You try to do the whole thing. If you want to mix them just a little bit, Paul's saying forget it. you got to go and do the whole law. And so it's very important that we do defend this and that we get this part of the gospel right. Because if we don't, understanding the relationship between works and faith in the life of a believer is just not going to make any sense. Um, how, how sin relates to us in the life of faith, it just won't make sense if we don't understand that justification is by faith alone. But that faith always has other things that comes with it, such as good works. So, is salvation by faith? I, I didn't really think that this needed a lot of exposition. Um, I didn't think it needed a lot of explanation. It was rather self-obvious. So, most of you are going to get to share your verse now because there's a whole long string. And I just wanted, as we talked about a Shiraz in uh, a couple weeks prior, where it's a stringing of pearls together of verses and rabbinic models of teaching. It's basically what we're doing here, just not as cool as Paul does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Romans 1, 16 through 17, Romans 3, 21 through 23, Philippians 3, 9, Acts 10, 43, Acts 13, 39, Mark 16, 16, Acts 16, 31, Galatians 2, 16. Is salvation by faith? Let these verses speak for themselves. Romans 1, 16 through 17. Speak up when you read them, please. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans three twenty one through 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Philippians 3, 9. <clears throat> and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Acts ten forty three. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Uh, Acts 13. Uh, was that Mark or Acts? Mark sixteen sixteen. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Acts sixteen thirty one. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Galatians two sixteen. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This is so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no human being will be justified. There's a lot of language in these verses about justification by faith. Justification by faith. Now, let me ask you this. This is kind of a theological question, and I, I have some definitions, but I, I want to throw it out to you guys to see what you guys think first. Um, I, I, I do want definitions, but I want you to kind of contrast these two things as well. Where is the difference between justification and sanctification? What is justification and sanctification, and what is the difference? 
Justification is the one-time work of God in salvation. Sanctification is the continuance of making and bringing you into holiness. Other thoughts to add on to that, if any? Yeah. In short, um, <laughs> even shorter than that, um, <coughs> justification is awesome. being declared righteous, and sanctification is being made righteous. Not that, not that sanctification is a one-time thing. You are sanctified, you were sanctified, and you will be sanctified. It is a continual process and a process that already happened all at the same time. Um, and you are justified, um, as he said, a one-time event of faith in Christ. Um, in short? <laughs> I, I put the short first, and then I explained the short. <laughs> in short, but long. <laughs> Explanation. Okay. Justification is a change in our judicial standing before God. Whereas before salvation, we've covered this in detail, we are considered guilty before God. Christ's righteousness is now giving us a new standing before God. It's now like, instead of not guilty, fully righteous. But it's more than a pardon. We receive merit before God through Christ as well. It's not just like, oh, cool, you're not negative. It's, it's not that you go from negative infinity to zero. It's negative infinity all the way to the other side. Does that make sense? It's not just like, oh, cool, you're not bad. You're now righteous. You're not just not guilty. Romans 4, 22 through 5, 2. This elevates us to a status of full acceptance and privilege before God through Christ. Say 4, 22. Through 5, 2. Yep. All right. uh, Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. So this passage is talking about Abraham recounting how he was saved by believing and Paul goes on to say that's that's not just for him, that's for all of us. Then, excuse me, chapter 5 opens by saying, okay, so you're now counted um, not guilty, but you also have this standing before God. So justification is not just declaring not guilty, you're also becoming fully righteous. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the appropriation of saving grace into practical holiness. I have, I have a phrase and then another phrase. Salvation, uh, sorry, sanctification is the appropriation of saving grace into practical holiness. Said another way, justification is how you get saved. Sanctification is what you do once you're saved. Is that fair? Does that make sense? How those are two different things. One is a one-time miraculous event, and the other is a process of Christ changing you and God morphing and Making you like a butterfly, ready to flap out of the cocoon. <laughs> Going to be so pretty one day when you just leave this bondage of the flesh. Anyways, <laughs> think with me here. Why is it actually a huge deal if you were to incorrectly state that justification is a process? 
I know we're getting a little philosophical and heady here, in a sense, but it actually makes a big difference. Why is it, so what, I, what I'm saying is a biblical position is that justification is a one-time forensic, God clears you, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, like boom, counted. What happens to your theology if you say justification is a process? Yes. Yes, it's it's a Roman like, Catholic idea. Yeah. Time where you have to spend before you're fully justified, because you're not like you're not guilty anymore, but you're like not fully justified. You haven't had so, the you know, full payment. Time that you have to spend before you're still hanging out with the I think in a practical sense, you never grow. You never move on. You like you're just constantly in that state of like oh like am I not or like, okay. you know, so you're I, saying it robs you of assurance, <laughs> okay, which really hinders. It makes, it makes you unstable. I, I think that I, uh, we'll, we'll be getting there too, but I think not having assurance in your life really does hinder your spiritual growth because you're just stuck on the fact that I don't know where I'm at. Yes. Yes. Um, going <coughs> off of what Charity said, I think it robs you of assurance, which in turn robs you, yes, of growth, um, but, I mean, of service and of obedience to the Lord. And I think that that can be used as, a while ago we, we used the term um, using grace as a license for, you know, for freedom or for what we view as we can do whatever we want. And that's not how grace works. Um, but I think it's easier if you think that it's a process to say, well, I'm, I'm being saved, so it's okay if I mess up, or it can kind of change your mindset to the point where you, in a way, are like taking advantage of grace, if that makes sense. Let me add something to this discussion. This is from um, the Council of Trent, which was the Catholic Church's response to the Reformation in which they purported that justification is a process. And I, I want you to pick out what you disagree with or agree with, I, f I suppose is uh, valid as well. Um, let me skip down here. That the sinner is justified by faith alone. If this means that nothing else is required by way of cooperation in the acquisition of grace of justification. Um, the Catholic council rule justification is not remission of sins merely but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man let me repeat that justification is not the remissions of sins merely but also the sanctification or renewal of the inward man through the voluntary reception of grace and of the gifts whereby man of unjust becomes just what's wrong with that it's, i know it's a little Yes. Here's biblical. <laughs> well, that that too. <laughs> so if you if you are to say that justification is not separate from sanctification, consequently that makes justification incomplete. Which, if that were biblical, that would be fine. But I don't believe that Scripture supports that. Our salvation then does depend in part on works. If justification is not complete by Christ, if our standing before God is not, boom, Christ takes care of it through faith, then it is human responsibility and achievement on top of Christ's work. Does that make sense? Does that logic set well? Or any, any kickback? I'm, it's fine. If you see a hole in it, that's totally chill. Okay. 
Um, one article I read in preparation for this uh, was a Catholic perspective suggested that the works Paul was referring to was the works of the law. However, even on a surface level, one thing that I found very, very troubling about that position, um, if you just open your Bible, if you have like those heading things, flip, just look at the heading above Romans 4.9. Look at the heading above Romans 4.9. When did Abraham live? Yes, when specifically? If before the law was given. Yes. Yes, Paul's example shows that justification is not by works of the law only. He's saying works in a broad sense, not just works of the law, because it literally was impossible for Abraham to do the works of the law because he didn't have the law. It wasn't there for him to work by. And so if there, is, if there are no works, there is reason to question faith if it's genuine, but justification in of itself is not dependent on works. Sanctification, improving your life, changing your life, God morphing you, cool. All that, yes, he changes how we work. But that's not part of us in our change of status before God. Does that make sense? For, for those of you who are more mathy inclined, the Roman Catholic view would say faith plus works equals justification. We assert, however, on the other hand, that real faith equals justification plus works. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. Faith plus works equals justification in the Roman Catholic view. Those two things together get you justified. The Protestant position is that real, genuine faith, you are justified by and it produces good works. Real faith equals justification and good works. Yes? So are they saying that Jesus isn't enough? Indirectly and consequentially, yes. So I don't necessarily think you'd get somebody to just be like, ha, ah, Jesus isn't enough. <laughs> that is what the doctrine then consequentially leads to. I mean, I don't... I don't necessarily think anyone's just going around like, oh, Jesus isn't good enough. But I, I do think that that's what that leads to. Um, and you know who it does say is good enough? You. Which I think we've proven is biblically incorrect and inconsistent with Scripture as a whole. I'll skip over that for now. We'll just... We'll just deal with that when we come to James. James. James is so fun. If you ever just go through James, James is just like a... What did I just read? And it's not an easy one. It is not. It is not at all. Let's, um, let's go ahead. So last week we looked at the dilemma a little bit. and that We started in Romans 3.21 and got through about Romans 3.23 or 24-ish. Okay. And so I don't necessarily want to rehash that. I think that's rather self-explanatory. And we're just going to breathe, breeze through passage of Scripture from about Romans 3.24 through Romans 4.8. We're just going to breeze through that. This isn't an exposition nor a study necessarily in that text, but I think it does illustrate our purpose well. And uh, as I... Just a stylistic note here, even when teaching topically, I prefer to kind of go through a passage that talks about that topic just to have the discussion more rooted in scripture and not just hodgepodging a 
you know, throw verses at a wall and hope some stick. Would somebody read, um, oh, why not Romans, like, 325? Oh, you know what? 24. Just do 24. It's such a beautiful verse, even if we don't need it for right now. <laughs> okay, 24 and 25. Do 24 and 25. Yeah. Being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions for the, <laughs> for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So I'm just going to breeze through this. So God sent Jesus to be a punishment for us. I think we've gone over that in enough detail um, throughout the years. And his shedding of his blood has opened the door for us. After all, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, as Hebrews would put it. And he posed this question. Why do you think that God sent Jesus to die for us, though? What is the main reason God had to send Christ to die? What is the main reason? To bring himself glory. I would agree with that. If you look at those verses again, actually read the phrases intentionally. Whom God set forth, Jesus, dying, propitiation, shedding of blood, as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, catch the, catch the um, oh, I forget that, great. Um, catch the reasoning behind it. Because, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. What do you think that means? What does that initial reading say to you? To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Any, any thoughts on that? So let me let me say it this way. <clears throat> Man would accuse God of being unjust if he did not punish sins. Right? I mean, you think of all the pagan deities throughout the ages. Man creates the gods to be just like them, inconsistent, you know, capricious in nature, just as unjust as man is. And God, Jehovah God, would be just like all the pagan deities if he had not sent Christ to die. He had to demonstrate to man his righteousness. Why? Why? His justice and his righteousness would be compromised if he did not. Why? Because he passed over sins that were previously committed. I mean, he didn't approve them and he didn't excuse them, but he just was like, cool, not going to destroy him. Not going to destroy him today. Not going to do it. I'm going to keep it together. And so, because he had passed over sins, he had to prove that he was righteous. And so, primarily, Christ died for God. Now, yes, we do get a wonderful blessing in our salvation, but God in his mercy, his attributes of mercy and grace, to all those who had sinned throughout all 4,000 years before the cross, God passing over those sins had to be punished. And if God didn't punish them at some point, he would be unrighteous. So to demonstrate his righteousness, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Does that make sense? So primarily, Christ died for God. Verse 26. Verse 26. Oh, Romans. 
Yes. <clears throat> to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when Christ died to prove that he is righteous, that God is righteous, that he is just, yet at the same time, he simultaneously was able to be the justifier. So he proved that he was just while also justifying us before God. Proving to God, prove, sorry, not proving to God, but proving for God that he is just and yet imputing righteousness to us. That's what justified means is to make righteous, to count righteous, to be righteous before God in the Pauline sense. Does that make sense? So he is able to be just and the justifier. His justice kissed his merciful, gracious love at the cross and the divine accomplishment of justification is finished for those who have faith, his blood through faith, as verse 25 says, or at the end of verse 26, justifier of one who has faith, pistis, in Jesus Christ. Really interesting side note on that church, uh, that name, that word pistis. That was the word of the churches that we visited in Ghana. And I think they really, they really embodied that word pistis, um, Pistis Community Church or something like that in Ghana. It was a very neat experience to see real faith lived out in a community like that. Anyways, verses 27 through 30. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. What about us if we did, if we did happen to have a part in our salvation, what about that makes us prone to boasting? Why is that? I mean, that's kind of the inference by the passage that if we played a part in justifying ourselves, why would that make us prone to boast? That's fair. So like you're, you're, since you're doing that, you're better than someone else who doesn't. It's like the natural competitive side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once somebody's able to do something that another person can't, that hurts that person in a, another category. Any. Higher category, almost, in their head, or another person's view. Right, yeah. I think it kind of gives us a along with God, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like we, we kind of like to raise ourselves up. That's like, you know, from the beginning, the desire was to be like God. Right. Yeah, I think, the, I think the pride trip comes very naturally for humans. But this passage, if not any other, shows that it is God who does the justifying. And so it is not in of ourselves. It's not, oh, looky, I did a thing. Like, God is both just and the justifier. It is faith in what he has done, not human goodness or any law or anything else that we may dream up or any Roman Catholic Church or any, honestly, literally anyone. May I say Protestants, too. Protestants have their own cute ways of doing it, but we can add things to just faith in Christ. And we'll be getting into that later because I think they're more applicable. But literally anything that adds that says, oh, we must do this on top of Christ's work for us, besides just faith in what he has done, is um, a different gospel, as Paul would put it. 
verse 31, if you would. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So, I mean, it would stand a reason for the Jewish audience here that, like, Paul is, like, literally wrecking the law, which is, like, ending it. And Jesus himself said that he didn't come to destroy the law, but, you know, to, f- to fulfill it. And Paul says the same thing here. Faith accomplishes what the law was meant for. It doesn't go against it. So we are now capable of obeying the law because the desire to obey the fleshy heart has been implanted within us. And simultaneously, the law's punishment was meted out appropriately at the cross. So we've been given the ability to obey through the Spirit, and the punishment for breaking the law was met by Christ, perfectly satisfying what the law is looking for. Um, Beyond this, Galatians shows that the law was meant to drive people to Christ by revealing their sinfulness, which fulfills the law once again. Um, So faith in Christ is the culmination and the culminating point of the law itself. So this is not the whole Pauline theology of faith being the way of salvation is not contrary to the methodology which God had set, you know, for all these thousands of years, but Jewish tradition had so lost the original purpose of the law that it seemed like just a shocking idea. Yeah. And what's really cool about that too is that um, in the process of coming to what Jesus says fulfill the law, um, he also talked about like how he talks about this in Matthew where um, you know, people, especially like the Pharisees, would be very legalistic about you know keeping keeping the law. Like they were very very stuck to what the law said. And so, but Jesus kind of wrecked them, and he was like, "Yeah, you may not have externally murdered someone, but if you have you know hated someone in your heart, then you've already committed murder." And so, in fulfilling the law, he took legalism out of it too, and saying, "You know, yes, you follow the law by following me, but that means that in your heart you also follow the law." And so that heart change was like a cool part of it because then, you know, Paul could wreck the law, say that Jesus fulfilled it, and then took legalism out at like all at the same time. Romans 4, 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So if you're talking to a Jew in this first century context, there is one trump card that Abraham just... (laughs) (laughs) There is one trump card that Paul continually, continually rolls back to. And have you guys ever been in a debate with somebody? If you know you just like appeal to this one thing, they're going to be like, oh, okay. That's what it is for these Jews. Abraham is like... You know, angel farts. Like, this is like, (laughs) sorry, this this is like the most magnanimous person that they can think of, just the most glorious patriarch. And Paul's going to show, by this example and with the example of David, that salvation is not of works. Paul didn't, uh, excuse me, Abraham didn't have anything to boast of before God. Now, to Christians, later on, as you know, and we're under this covenant of grace here. We are admonished to believe on Christ and his finished work on the cross. As we've gone through, that's kind of the facts that we have addressed, believe on Christ and, you know, yada, 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 what we all know to be true. 
However, Abraham did not have a Christ to believe in. Rahab did not have a Christ to believe in. You know what they were responsible for? Believing the revelation that they had been shown by God. Believing God. What was that for Abraham? Trusting about the whole promise with Isaac. For Rahab, you know, it was the whole thing with the spies. There was no, you know, Christ for them to believe in at that point. Now, later on, you know, you're starting to look forward to the Messiah coming. But the revelation that they had at that point in time, believe God, and it was counted for him for righteousness. And so for us, yes, this is transposed into believing on Christ. But Paul's showing that from the beginning, before the law, it's always been by faith in the revelation that God has shown to man at that point. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, verses 4 through 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is, ac- is accounted for righteousness. Does God owe anyone salvation why yes okay other thoughts why does God not owe anyone salvation Yes. God is a debtor to no one. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I miss a hand? Yes. To owe would imply that we were able to do something for him, but he is self-sufficient. Yes. God is debtor to no one. He is entirely self-sufficient. Frankly, he doesn't need you. Now, he wanted you, and that's awesome. That's really awesome. But he doesn't need you. He is. He is completely wrapped up. Not wrapped up in himself, but, I mean, he can be. He's a, I mean... He's not going to share his glory. I mean, he is he is the one who is worthy to be wrapped up in himself, if that makes sense. Yes. And so saying that might sound like selfish or, you know, for any of us, if we were just like wrapped up in ourselves, we'd be like, man, I don't like hanging around that person because it is all about them. And so like the, the, the statement might come out and be like, well, that's a selfish God. Well, if you knew what literally is the best thing for somebody in the entire world, like what will bring them the most joy and happiness and fulfill all their needs and wants, and that is bringing glory to the one that is deserving of it, that's not selfishness. That is, you know, that's just what is right in essence. If so, if good sermon to listen to is today's sermon by John Piper off of Desiring God. So he basically talks about that. It's amazing. To presume that we can be in a position to where we can be the one God owes something to, kind of the lender to God in a sense, is to assume an incredibly low view of God. 
and an exalted version of man at that, but it's a low version of low version and low view of God to say that he is in need and owing and subservient to humanity, which is exactly against what Paul was saying. And so he has, you know, now shown or begun to show, and he's going to continue to use Abraham, and I think it's beyond our scope of discussion. He's going to continue to show how Abraham was justified by faith before circumcision. The promise was granted through faith, not part of the law, etc., etc. We're not going to get into that. I think it goes a little bit beyond our scope of discussion for this series. However, I wanted to pause here, and we're going to pretty well finish off on this. David, he, he gets in this little thing about David. And if Abraham was the guy that Paul used to show in a technical sense was justified by faith, David is the one that he uses in a heart-touching manner to show what it feels like to be justified by faith. Throughout all the Psalms, David is probably not known for his, you know, wonderful systematic theology that he lays out, but rather how he pours out his heart before God on a continual basis. And so while Genesis recounted Abraham being justified by faith, sort of in this judicial, sort of very, not dry, but a little bit more just boom, 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 Paul quotes a very interesting psalm to show that David was, David knew what it felt like Abraham knew what it was like, and I'm not discounting that he probably knew what it felt like too, but David is the epitome of he got it. He really felt it. Um, Would somebody just read verse 6? Paul says it so well here. Chapter 4, verse 6, Romans, New Testament. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He describes the blessedness. He, he's not just an example. He, he, know, he knew it. He knew he was justified by faith, and he enjoyed it. Go ahead and read verses 7 through 8, and we're going to go back to two psalms in the Old Testament that relate to this. And this is where I said the public reading thing was going to happen. But I just these psalms are so beautiful in their entirety that I, want, I wanted to take a moment to hear them. But go ahead and read verses 7 and 8 out of Romans. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So these verses, and we're going to read, this is from Psalm 32. We're also going to read out of um, Psalm 51. Uh, if I get the word correct, um, these um, these are both psalms that the early church identified as penitentiary psalms, I believe would be the term. Basically, we all know David's story here. He messed up pretty thoroughly a couple times. Um, Perhaps his lesser heir in life to counting the people for the census, which is an entirely different lesson than I've taught before. Perhaps his lesser sin in his life was the sin of um, committing adultery with Bathsheba and and thereby killing Uriah the Hittite. A truly devastating sin to be placed in the leadership like the highest man a man after God's own heart a man in leadership fell to this terrible sin and so these two psalms these two psalms that are like well the one that's quoted here and one other that we're going to read are both David reflecting on God's mercy and 
and his grace to forgive sin after that heinous, heinous act. Which to me added a lot of, wow, he really felt it. When we sin and we know the weight of our sin, especially something as grievous as David's sin, he certainly felt the weight of his guilt, and that's described in these verses. But on the flip side of that, it also shows how much he knew God's forgiveness in his life, which, according to David and as interpreted by Paul and the Holy Spirit, only comes through the faith justifying us before God because David had thoroughly messed up and he knew it and there was only one faith that would remediate and clear him of these sins. I forget what psalm it comes from but there is a verse that says if you O Lord should mark iniquities who should stand? Let's start by Psalm 51. This is the classic um, this is the classic on David's response to the Lord after he had sinned. If there was anyone who the Lord should count as unrighteous, it would be David for such a sin. But we're going to start with Psalm 51. The two verses that you see quoted in the New Testament by uh, Romans 7 and 8 are the first two verses in Psalm 32, which will be the next up. So we're going to have a public reading of those. Honestly, I would recommend close your eyes, think about these, ponder them as it's read, um, almost in a prayerful state for your own life. Psalm 51, please. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, your desire, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O God, open my lips, and my mouth, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I will give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings 
whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. My only remaining question is this, and I, I trust this is one that you'll ponder in your own heart. What do we rely on besides faith in Christ for our standing before God? Whether you're saved or not, our goodness, our righteousness before God and in his eyes, it all comes from faith in Christ. And so, we like to puff ourselves up in some senses, whether that be through knowledge or because we're so good in school or physical attributes or whatever all, or perhaps even more grievously because of some spiritual position and some ministry that we have that is very popular in the sight of men. And so we feel that God is more pleased by our spirituality. And that's not true. Our faith in Christ and his, his worth before God is where it's at. And so if we're building our spirituality and our goodness before God, whether in the justification sense or even in our relational sense, it's going to feel very shaky and unsteady. As I've said before, sometimes I, I feel, not that it's true, but I feel that my relationship with God is more unsteady than some of my relationships with people because I'm more consistent with some people than I am with God in some senses. However, that is very faulty. It is not me, it is not my doing that has my place before God. And so our status before God, our justification is secure. And we don't have to rely on anything else for our spirituality or our justification. No matter how wonderful what you are, what you're doing is, or how terrible what you're doing is, our justification comes from Christ and Christ alone. And so that's where we can place our hope. As David fell into the grossest sin, I, I love the words, I really love the words that Paul finishes as an example with here. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed it is 
the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Let's finish on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is a classic passage on faith and salvation. And I'm sure you all know it, but just in the context of David and his lovely feeling and enjoyment in the remission of sins through faith, this becomes so much sweeter and so much richer when you hear it. Read it with passion. Whoever has it, you better read it with passion. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Father, I want to ask that you would please, that you would please help us to get this doctrine straight. Mixing justification and sanctification, though it may seem trivial, is not just theological hair-splitting. It is an important bit to magnify, edify, and exalt the work of Christ. I pray that we would have the doctrine right. I do, I do ask that, but more than anything, I ask that our practice would be right, that it wouldn't just be profession, but that it would be our deeds, that in our heart we wouldn't rely on our spirituality or our position or our goodness that we so perceive it as. I pray that we would trust in your work on the cross so deeply that we don't feel our relationship with you is shaky because it is through faith and not of works. It is by faith alone. But that's, that faith which is saving, as reformers put it, is never alone. And I'm so thankful that you don't drop us off on the justification train and say, hope you have a good life. But you take us all the way through. You sanctify us for the rest of our remaining time and fully in heaven. And I pray to thank you for our final salvation, which is indeed all, all of Christ, not of man and not of works, lest anyone should boast. In Jesus' name, amen.